Hello and welcome to the Church Times podcast. This week, the Reverend Fergus Butler Galley is in conversation with the writer and historian Tom Holland. They talk about Fergus's new book, A Field Guide to the English Clergy. The conversation was recorded at Hatchard's Bookshop in London last month. The book is available from the Church Times Bookshop at the special price of £11.70. Why not treat friends and family to a Christmas gift subscription of the Church Times? We'll send a Christmas card announcing your gift, together with a delicious bar of fair trade Church Times chocolate, and your choice of one of three great books. They will then receive the Church Times in the post every week of 2019. All for just £85, a saving of over 30% on the paper's cover price. Go to churchtimes.co.uk slash Christmas. And if you like the Church Times podcast, please rate us on iTunes. It helps people to find us. Thank, thank you very much, Alex. And um, I, I, I thought since you've got a degree in theology, we should kick off with some theology. And I can see everyone's faces lighting up at the prospect. Um, Jesus famously wept. But you say in here that God has a sense of humour. Would you care to justify that? I uh, see so you've been watching, uh, was it, In the Name of the Rose, uh, which is, if you haven't seen it, it's a film. It's sort of a Poirot in medieval outfits, essentially, where Sean Connery plays this Franciscan uh, friar who is trying to prove that um, uh, Aristotle has written about humour being as sort of uh, important as weeping and misery. And this was a genuine question that people in medieval times worried about. There is no biblical record of Christ laughing, but there is a particular verse, shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Um, So Christ cries, he doesn't laugh, therefore how can God have a sense of humour? I think God does have a sense of humour, if we're talking theologically. It is a bitter and twisted sense of humour. It is the sense of humour of Juvenal, of Swift, of the book of Job, uh, of Sirach, of the wisdom literature. It is a sense of humour that may appear, to my mind, perverse to uh, human ears and eyes and minds, but that's sort of the point, because it's God's sense of humour. You read the book of Job, and it reads essentially as a um, a sort of a cross of an episode of sort of Judge Judy with an episode of Black Adder. It's this kind of courtroom drama. There's this irony, there's bitterness, there's anger. Um, but at the root of it, there is a kind of, there's a mockery. Um, the feast of Charles King and Martyr is one that I and I believe many high Anglicans have a certain degree of affection for. And the opening sentence for morning prayer at that, um, at that feast in the old prayer book was, God is not mocked. Now, to my mind, God can mock, but God is not mocked. And you say that as, um, as a clergyman. Yeah. So just before we get on to the book itself, was, was becoming a clergyman always part of your life plan, or is that, was, is that a, a late career step? Or? I suppose it was always a bit of a running joke. <laughs> Um, <laughs> a, bit like, a bit like the Church of England. Um, <laughs> uh, it was a sort of, it was almost one of those jokes that became a reality, which I'm sure, you know, like your cricket career, um, it's one of those things where people tease you and they sort of think, oh, you know, or you, you play a part. So people, and then were, you... pe- 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 people were thinking that you were going to become a vicar when you were kind of six? Or something. No, not when I was or... six. Gosh, I think they probably thought that I was destined for um, 
eternal torment when I was six. I was a horrible child um, and remained pretty horrible into my teens. So when did teens, you become nice? And early twenties. Well, or I think that's an o- nice? well, as with all Christians, I would say it's an ongoing process. Right. Um, I don't think I can't pinpoint a certain moment, but there was a moment where I decided that rather than mocking God, actually, I did. I was convinced by the uh, the claims of Christianity. So had you ever had uh, moments of, of, of unfaith? Or had you oh, always I think been as a believer? Child, as a, I mean, as a child, we, we, we were sort of baptised as children, but that was sort of a kind of, <coughs> I don't know, for the same reason people sing Christmas carols or people do covers of um, you know hymns. It's no, I'm not sure whether that was... It was the done thing rather than... In many ways, it's a very classic English way of engaging with religion. It was, a, it was the done thing, we were baptised. Um, but... Religion didn't really come up at home, um, you know, sex, God, politics. These are the sort of things you don't talk about around the dinner table. Um, Quite right, well, too. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> they're things you do on the dinner table, I'm not sure. But um, <laughs> certainly in my house that didn't happen, um, unless there's something my parents aren't telling me. Um, but, you know, in our house it was just wasn't the done thing. But I suppose it was something I became interested in through the study of history. You know, so I, I came across history... And I thought, well, there's this thing, the church, faith, that if I'm going to understand Henry VIII or Robert Walpole or uh, Queen Victoria or the Battle of the Somme, actually, to understand those things, you can't not engage with the worldview that existed at the time. And if you want to understand that worldview, as much as we like, might like to pretend that, you know, everyone is born a sort of atheist and everyone actually before conditioning comes in they're all little mini professor dawkinses i think actually the the world that we are in is shaped by christianity and so i thought well i've got to go and give this thing a go i've got to give it some credence um so i read a bit i attended church a bit uh, but uh, the whole thing has been uh, a story of do you take how seriously do you take this and so you've taken it more and more seriously to the point of, of being ordained. Yes, I suppose so, if you can call that taking it seriously. <laughs> I think I do. I say, <laughs> although, dress, although, dressed like a Victorian dentist, <laughs> I sort of don't know whether I feel well, well, especially I, serious. No, I, 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 and I, I think th- I, I think becoming be, becoming a vicar, becoming a clergyman is is a, is, is a serious business. Although my bank course, manager would certainly say the so. joy <laughs> of the joy of your field guide to the English clergy is the degree to which you point out that deep moral seriousness can be combined with um, complete lunacy. Yeah. Um, so everybody, this is a, a, those who haven't read it, this is um, a, a collection of biographies of a highly eccentric men, and they are all men, are. because as you say, um, you, you're not... <laughs> you're not dealing with anyone who's still alive, and so that rules out... Um, Almost all of the women who have been yes. ordained in the Church of England <laughs> over the past. Sadly, the um, a curate stipend does not stretch to the legal fees, <laughs> no. so it's only the, the dead rather than the quick. Um, and, and so I wonder, presumably you were, you were born and raised Anglican. Is, do, do you think that, is the Anglican Church a peculiarly hospitable home? to eccentrics and was that part of the appeal of becoming a church of england a church of england priest for you i i suppose so um i think there is something about it's chicken and egg stuff are anglicans strange because of the english or are the english strange because their national church has shaped them in a certain way i don't i genuinely don't think i have an answer to that i think there is something about 
dwelling on this strange, rainy little island that gives a degree of um, tolerance for behaviour that elsewhere might be considered beyond the pale. Um, and a lot of that has to do perhaps with economic prosperity, uh, again, which is something that, that is linked into the church. A lot of that has to do with, with this sort of cultural predilections, I suppose. But but why are the English strange, I suppose, perhaps explains why their church is strange. Or is it the other way around? Are the English strange because their church has been historically... You know, this is a church where, I mean, church historians among you argue with me, but to my mind, the founding figure of the Church of England is not Henry VIII, it's not St. Augustine, it's not even Cranmer, it's Elizabeth I, which is why the great irony of our wranglings over women is that she is the figure... Arguably, she founds the modern monarchy. She founds modern conceptualizations of England. But Elizabeth, and she famously says, I'm not here to make windows into men's hearts. And there is something about the necessary breadth um, that the Church of England has always sought. And indeed, once the Church of England melts away from being the English conscience sometime in the 19th century, the English as a whole have always sought to be as broad as possible in their definition of what it is to be English. I think that is something to do with the fact that we have always been uh, pushing as far as we can to define Anglicanism, what it means to be member of the church as broad as possible. I don't think they're unrelated. So, so, so um, a, a, as a teaser, of all the, the, the priests that you've written about, mm. who to you seems the most eccentric? I mean, who is number one on the list oh. of most eccentric Church of England priests who's ever lived? Well, I suppose, I mean, one of the one of the absolute big ones is Robert Hawker, who who we we still actually have his legacy in the Church of England to this day in the form of the Harvest Festival. Those of you who went to kind of prep schools, primary schools, whatever, um, will have been used to being sent in with a sort of tin of baked beans in the bottom of your school bag, not really knowing why. Well, this bloke is the person to blame. Um, he essentially invented the Harvest Festival. He was sent out from. Oxford, where they invariably all went uh, to go and be a clergyman out in Cornwall in the parish of Mormonstow, which is on the very northern edge of Cornwall. It's a windswept, awful place. It's kind of pole dark on speed. It's kind of it's it's about as extreme as that coastline gets. Um, and he sat there in a tiny little rock church that had been there since I think one of those Cornish saints that was meant to have flown over from Ireland in a magic box or whatever um, had founded this. Uh, in sort of 600 and there was this tiny little box that hadn't changed and he was called to be there in the middle of the 19th century to go and be the cleric and in his own words you know his his parishioners were little more than half baptized pagans um these are people who it was a bit like again it was kind of the love child of the wicker man and poldark in the sense that kind of they were all gathering together and the, the shape of the year was shaped not by the liturgical calendar but by the, the calendar of the harvest essentially and so he said well okay how can i in actually the truest Christian tradition, the tradition of you know, St. Francis, uh, St. Paul even, uh, he chose to baptise pagan practice and he develops the Harvest Festival. However, he was also a complete lunatic. Uh, he'd been booted out of his previous curacy. The reason he ends up in Mornstow is he goes to Bude, which is, you know, New York compared to Mornstow. <laughs> this is you know, a big town in North Cornwall. Um, and he chooses to spend his time there as curate, sat on a rock, um, in the middle of the bay, dressed as a mermaid. Again, as you do. As you do, again, to mock... I, I mean, in one level, it's to mock the superstition, because, of course, these Cornish people arrive and say, I 
or there's a mermaid out there. I don't know how Cornish <laughs> people um, speak. Uh, but they sort of they detect there's this mermaid, and they keep on arriving to see it singing, when it, in fact it's this overweight curate with some sort of seaweed in his hair, some scallops on his tits, and a bit of kind of oil skin wrapped around him, sitting on a rock. Do we do we know? Did he make a convincing mermaid? Well, so they were convinced enough for one of the local farmers to suggest quite loudly from the rocks firing a gun at him. Um, well, I would say not that attractive, though. So not that attractive. But, you know, there was the thought these are spirits that might, you know, drag sailors to their deaths. Um, there was also, they had a slight, in the similar manner to the citizens of Hartlepool, who famously hanged a monkey um, because they didn't know what a French person looked like. Uh, there was a conviction, there was an idea that this mermaid might be a French, this is what French people look like, is this a French spy coming over to listen to our you know, agricultural policy or whatever. Um, so they fire, um, so this farmer gets a sort of blunderbuss and says, I'm going to fire at this mermaid. At which point the mermaid, <laughs> Reverend Robert Hawker, M.A. Oxon, um, begins, <laughs> begins singing the national anthem very loudly <laughs> to demonstrate that he is not, in fact, a French spy. And at this point, the villagers are sort of vaguely convinced that he's legitimate. Um, but he must have been convincing enough at yeah. a distance. Do you, I mean, is this a kind of transgender thing? Uh, per, uh, perhaps. I mean, he was he was he had various other sort of um, manifestations of strangeness. He was obsessed with animals rather than humans, uh, to the extent that on a Sunday morning, because he had all these baptized pagans, as he called them, um, he had a congregation made up of cats, mostly about eight or nine cats. And he caught one of them mousing on a Sunday. And so he had a public ceremony of excommunication. So this, this cat has broken the laws of the Sabbath and must be shamed in front of its other cats, who are presumably, I don't know, defecating and scratching his pews whilst he did this. Um, he also had a pet stag called Robin, who he was, he was convinced was tame. But... It wasn't. wasn't tame. So he would invite people to his house saying, oh, don't worry, come in for tea because it's fine because I've got all these animals, but they're tame. And the stag would career into his office and pin down an archdeacon whilst he sort of claimed, he said, oh, no, it's just his way, he's tame. A bit like those people when a dog starts attacking another dog. So it's not in his nature. It's not in his nature, except this was a kind of massive uh, stag from Dartmoor that he'd somehow got in his house. So, I, I, I mean, I, I, I gather that nowadays the Church of England is kind of very into human resource departments and and things like that did, did they have the equivalent in the 19th century and if if so what was the, the response to this mermaid impersonating well suppose you have archdeacons um whose job is to sort of how would you describe an archdeacon good lord um they're a bit like the police but also they're meant to resource you. So the, the Archdeacon investigates. They, they wear gloves, don't they, in, in Rev? In Rev, yes. They yes. Sort of wear, I mean, it's, it, you get called the Venerable, which gets um, uh, confused with venereal um, on a regular basis. It's not actually the best title to have. People think you're sort of walking STD. Indeed, I have a definition uh, sitting there in my glossary. I've just been pointed out by the... So Archdeacon, not as you would have thought a sort of superdeacon, uh, but rather, these are the figures in charge of the nitty-gritty day-to-day management of church affairs. Their role is varied, including stopping bishops stepping out of line, line and ensuring that the Church of England remains focused on its primary purpose, which is, of course, keeping several thousand of the nation's ancient buildings open, using only the proceeds of a Sunday school cake sale and the 15 half shillings found down at the sofa by the WI. Um, they're also in charge of clergy discipline which, as this book shows, they very rarely have to um, perform. So essentially, um, the, 
he was able to carry on? More or less. More I mean, there's something about Cornwall, isn't there? I mean, an awful lot of the people in here are yes. Cornwall, Norfolk. Yes. There is something about being <laughs> far from normal for Norfolk, as they say. Um, there is something about being far from centres of authority. Although you, you have an Archbishop of Canterbury who Indeed. every morning apparently would wake up and bang his head three times on the desk saying, I hate the Church of England. I hate the Church so of England. So tell me about him. I hate the Church of England. Well, that is um, Archbishop Michael Ramsey. Who is, you know, widely considered by many Anglicans as a saint, but he, um, there is no doubt that he was a very strange man. I mean, if he went forward for holy orders these days, he definitely wouldn't pass muster. I mean, you know, um, he, there's no way he'd get through the process now. Famous, it's thought now. There's been sort of retrospective diagnoses. Did he have Tourette syndrome, or did he have Asperger's, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. Um, but famously, he he was odd from the start of his career. He started off as a canon in Durham. Um, he was uh, canon in the cathedral and he was once showing some American servicemen this during the war round the cathedral um, only for them to sort of start looking at a, uh, a memorial or something and he forgot who they were and rather than brace sort of you know the awkwardness of you know, how do I engage with these people? He just locked them in there in the hope that they might go away. <laughs> so there were these American servicemen banging on the doors of Durham Cathedral in the hope that he might come back. But they had to be let out the next morning by the dean. Um, similarly, um, when he was Regis, he was Regis Professor at Cambridge, so he was a really bright, you know, this supposedly bright man. Um, but he, when he was being driven from a lecture in London all the way back to Cambridge, he was being driven by a young chaplain or curate. And as he went through the town of Bulldog in Hertfordshire, he became so captivated by the name on the road sign that he spent the rest of the journey screaming the word out the window. <laughs> so he was driving through, those of you who know Cambridge, up the kind of Hills Road or whichever way, he was shouting, Bulldog! Bulldog <laughs> of people! Which is why people think he might have had Tourette's, because he'd become obsessed with this word. But he ended up as Archbishop of, um, <laughs> Archbishop of Canterbury, which is astonishing. <laughs> um, there's, I mean, the one who ended up this is Archbishop of York, Lancelot Blackburn. Yes, tell us about him. So, as you will probably know, the current Archbishop of Canterbury was an um, oil uh, trader before he entered Holy Orders. The current Bishop of London was a nurse. Um, the current Archbishop of York was a lawyer. It's the trend these days to not do what I have done, which is be, be sort of idle and profligate in university for eight years and then enter Holy Orders, uh, but actually to have done something have a great kind of um, career uh, behind you. Lancelot Blackburn had done that. He was um, a pirate for a number of years in the Caribbean, um, where he spent his time sort of pillaging and raiding Spanish colonies yeah. um, and being paid quite handsomely for it. Um, and was so, this a good preparation? For uh, well, I'd say so. Certainly financially, he was probably more yeah. on top of things than many clergy are now. Um, but he essentially, he came back and he was made... Dean of Exeter, where he was suspended for digging a tunnel underneath the cellar of his house into the next door house so he could conduct an affair with the canon presenter's <laughs> wife. Um, now, as if this wasn't enough, you would have thought, OK, that's an end to your clerical career. You've constructed major en engineering works to con commit adultery. Apparently not. <laughs> of course, the 18th century was a different time. Um, and when George I came to the throne, he was desperate to find a clergyman who was corrupt enough to marry him bigamously to his mistress and in fairness he got all the way i mean fair play to the church of england he got all the way from the archbishop of canterbury down to the dean of exeter before he found someone who was prepared to do this job um and lancelot blackburn was because if he'd been a pirate i mean a bit of 
marrying a mistress second time round is kind of it's amateur hour really. Yeah. Um, and so he did this, and in return he was made Archbishop of York, um, which <laughs> a position he held for twenty two years. And did 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 it redound to his credit his um, his career as an archbishop? Well, it was famously said that. Um, his behaviour was uh, never that that was expected of an archbishop. Indeed, his behaviour was rarely up to the standards of a pirate. So I think he probably carried on all of that. Famously, he employed Dick Turpin as his butler um, in an inspired appointment during his time in York. Um, and he was once caught in what I think would now be called by um, the tabloids uh, a three-in-a-bed romp. Um, with a local milkmaid, which you know, again, that he, given that he was sort of a, a member of the dignified clergy in his, by this point in his early seventies, it's not an unimpressive achievement in its own way. So um, yeah, but he ended up, you know, he was he was pretty hard. He, you know, he just kept on going. And he... But you, you mentioned um, vicars in in, in tabloids, mm. and for many people, I suppose that is the role of a vicar is is to be caught out because of uh, knickers. And yes, all that. and then a, and then a. a appear in the tabloid do you think that um that that kind of glorious tradition in the church of england is one that um that you and your generation will maintain or or, or are the golden days of um clerical misbehavior behind us i don't us? know i mean has buzzfeed published any articles recently i don't know i suppose media is changing so there mm. isn't the same you know a dirty vicar story probably doesn't get as many clicks yeah. On uh, on Facebook, as 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 it sells copies of the Sun, the golden era was the thirties when the infamous um, Harold Davidson, who became briefly this little vicar of um, town Stiffkey, also pronounced Stukey, in Norfolk, tiny little village in Norfolk, North Norfolk, briefly became arguably the most famous man in the world. The New York Times, Le Figaro, Corriere della Sera, etc., uh, etc. Um, possibly even Pravda, although I don't know whether that was... Well, it would prove their kind of religion, wouldn't it? It will indeed. These international papers sent their sort of international reporters to this tiny village in Norfolk where the vicar had been booted out um, for his associations with showgirls. He appointed himself as... Uh, in his own words, the prostitute's padre, which didn't end especially well. Um, he gets booted out, and in the end he has to find money somehow for this ongoing legal case that he's trying to take to the House of Lords. Um, and so he makes money through end-of-the-peer shows, um, where he, he, he originally starts in um, Blackpool, and he leaves Blackpool because he thinks it's a little down market after he's asked to uh, share a bill with... Uh, the world's fattest man and uh, Miranda the gorilla woman, um, <laughs> neither of which he believes is quite up to the stands of his clerical orders. So instead he goes to Skegness, which everyone knows is much classier than Blackpool. Um, and in Skegness he has an act called the modern Daniel in the lion's den, which he conceives of as a great allegory for his poor treatment by the press, the fact that the press have been like lions at him. However, old habits die hard, and rather than employing a professional lion tamer, he employs a very attractive 16-year-old local girl to be in charge of the lions. <laughs> and so unsurprisingly, midway through one of his performances, the lions start eating him because they're not controlled very well. So he ends his days eaten alive on Skegness Pier um, with the world's media watching, essentially. Can the Church of England pull off a kind of publicity coup like that these days? I sincerely doubt it. I think, you know... <laughs> Shouting at Wonga or whatever we make make the headlines for now, or a kind of a, 
an affair here, an affair there is not going to quite be the same as being but it, would be, it would be a kind of radical solution, wouldn't it? It would. I mean, the declining profile of the church. church I think um, certainly have a eaten by lions on Skegness Pier. Yes. I'm sure. Oh, I mean, more maybe live on. I mean, there's probably Strictly or something. <laughs> you asked Richard Coles whether well, he fancies. I, kind of, yes, I, I mean, I don't know. You could send a, a sort of round robin around the diocese of Lincoln. I'm not sure there's much else to do there, really. <laughs> but I'm not sure whether being eaten alive by a lion is really quite up on the list of things. Well, you know, the grand tradition of martyrdom. In, indeed, in. indeed. I, I, I mean, one of the one. So we've we've basically talked about crooks yeah. so far. But one of the things that is, is really wonderful about this book is that um, there's also a great deal of holiness here. Uh, and there's a kind of, you know, the, the idea of the holy fool almost yeah. is there, isn't it? I mean, who, so, so of, of these, who would, who would you say was, um, you know, a kind of, uh, uh, would provide Christians with a model well, there's so arguably there are, as you say, there are plenty, and I would hope that you know this isn't a book that's there to mock the church. This is this is a book that is conceived out of profound affection yeah. for the church and the church in the breadth of its strangeness and its imperfection. Um, but I would hope there are figures in there who do do exactly that. There's the Reverend Hugh Duffy Grimes, who um he went up to uh, Cambridge in the early 20th century where he read. Um, geography, which is obviously what you read if you're a bit thick. Um, but he, so he basically <laughs> read geography um, where he became obsessed with population movements in Australia. Nothing to do with theology whatsoever. Um, and he ends up writing a book on that, a book on um, the Industrial Revolution in uh, Herefordshire or something, which those of you who've been to Herefordshire will know the Industrial Revolution hasn't hit Herefordshire yet. So <laughs> it was a very short book. Um, so he's this kind of profligate waste man really he has no kind of direction in his life and he ends up taking holy orders he becomes ordained because you know what if you didn't really know what you were doing between about 1650 and 1950 that's what you did or what a number of people did um so he takes holy orders and he quickly decides he can't be bothered with a parish too many people mailing him oh my grandma's died oh my baby needs baptizing so done with that he can't be bothered with that so he takes up a role of kind of wandering chaplain through the resorts of europe and this was the age where 20s and 30s the english are the people with money in europe so there's loads of sort of chaplaincy set up for people on the from the costa del sol to kronstadt you know across the entire continent where people basically go and they do six months here six months there being chaplain to a place and so he goes to Le Touquet, he goes to Saint-Tropez, he goes to uh, Spain, he goes to Germany. By 1938 he's ended up in Vienna and he happens to be in Vienna at the time of the Anschluss when essentially the union happens between Austria and Nazi Germany and very rapidly um, a number of uh, quite rigorous laws against Jewish people are rolled out by the government. And he gets a knock on his door one day by one of his Jewish neighbours um, saying, can you help us? And, you know, this absolute waste of space has been only really known Cambridge common rooms and then seaside resorts steps up to the mark. And he produces something like 2,500 baptismal certificates for Jewish people who are then smuggled out of Austria and are saved before the Holocaust um, gets going properly. There are still people alive to this day, yeah. children who were um, who were given certificates by him and were, were smuggled out. So 
people like him who, on the face of it, you know, in terms of their clerical career. By the way, when he went back to England, he became um, famous for swimming naked off pool in Dorset. That was all he did essentially in his retirement. He didn't tell anyone. It was only actually about, I think, about ten years ago, two thousand and eight, when uh, Christchurch, Vienna, the Anglican church there, discovered the role of their former chaplain. Um, hmm. He did things like, you know, not only doing this, he he allowed um, MI5 and MI6 to essentially appoint his um, church wardens for him. So you had these sort of people who were technically in charge of you know, the accounts at the chaplaincy, and they were in fact uh, double agents appointed from London, one of whom ended up dying in Auschwitz. Um, so he he essentially, this guy who, by all the kind of measurements of achievement that the church has, and indeed the secular world has really, he was a complete waste of space. Actually, he steps up to the mark um, in the moment. So someone like him, I think, is a reminder that what we conceive of as holiness isn't necessarily performative. Uh, it isn't necessarily uh, quantifiable, even in your clerical career. Sometimes it is being in the right place in the right time and being oh, kind of, you know, you know what? If you can't be bothered to even complete your curacy, yeah. you're not going to care whether the kind of might of the Third Reich is there and saying, you know, you've got to do this. You get on with it. There's... There's also um, about many of the um, of the men you write about in here a, a quality of, of lovability. Mm -hmm. Many of them are very, yeah, very lovable. Yeah. Um, I mean, I wonder which one, which one was your was the your most lovable one. Um, oh, I mean, I have a favourite one who's probably a bit of a rogue who I'll talk about. No, no, we've talked about later. But my <laughs> most my, my I think the most lovable one is someone like um, uh, Bishop Cecil of Exeter, who is he's the son of the Prime Minister, and he, um, Lord Salisbury, Prime Minister at the start of the um, 20th century, end of the 19th century, um, and Salisbury is this titan in pre-war Britain. You know, he is the guy who actually, more so than Gladstone and Disraeli, he is this figure who dominates the political scene. And his third son, William, Lord William Cecil, he's thick as two short planks. He's really, really, really stupid. He goes to Eton. And he's given the nickname Fish because he's so gormless. And he comes back one holiday and he complains to his mother and father. Said, oh, they're calling me Fish, it's really unfair. And so his family start calling him Fish as well. In that kind of great tradition of the English upper classes of kind of parenting skills. And so he's known as Fish. There's this kid called Fish. And he goes, some, I mean, through his father's uh, sort of intercession, he goes to Oxford, where he gets the worst mark in any law degree in the history of the university. Um, so he reads law and they're like, well, you, obviously you can't read for the bar. So what's left? Holy orders. He, he becomes ordained. And he's allowed to be vicar of one place, Hatfield, because his dad lives up the road at Hatfield House. And so he sits there for absolutely ages, doing essentially as little as possible, being a fish. Um, until in 1916, the Bishop of Exeter takes advantage of new legislation to retire. And under the then legislation, brought in by Asquith and Lloyd George in their great reforming uh, Liberal government from 1906, um, part of the diocese's income has to go to basically for the upkeep of any retired clergy. So the former Bishop of Exeter reaches 60, he's like, right, I'm done, I'm retiring. He could live for another 25 years, which he eventually does. So a third of the diocesan income is spent on keeping this bloke who's now not doing anything. So they have this quandary, how do we appoint a bishop when the pay is cut by a third? So they ring round, essentially. And of course, you've got to remember, this is 1916. They've got a small matter of the First World War going on. Asquith has bigger things to worry about than who is going to be the next Bishop of Exeter, astonishing as though that may seem. Um, and they say, well, who's got cash? 
And of course, if your dad's Lord Salisbury and he's been Prime Minister, you've got a few bob knocking about. And they're like, well, there's fish. So, we can't make fish Bishop, Bishop of Exeter. So, well, there's no one else. So fish becomes Bishop of Exeter. Um, <laughs> and he is completely unsuitable to the role in many ways. Um, he, his eccentricities are manifest. He invites all the clergy to come and meet him. Um, and midway through his meeting, they're sort of talking like this, and he's maintaining a veneer of normality. Suddenly he gets his powder out of his pockets and starts throwing it in the fire, at which point these explosions start coming <laughs> from the fire. The dean's wife dies for cover, the canons of the cathedral die for cover. Um, and as the kind of dust settles and it sort of rips in the furniture, I said, what did you do that for? He said, well, I like the colours. <laughs> so that was the start of his introduction to the clergy of his diocese. Um, he ends up developing a kind of minor kleptomania, but specifically for bicycles. <laughs> so he gets sent out on diocesan to go and do a confirmation or to go and open a church or whatever bishops do, and invariably he will steal a bicycle whilst he's there. His practice was to ride everywhere. Um, and he steals whichever bicycle you see. And so his wife and his chaplains get together and say, well, how can we stop fish stealing all these bikes? Because the cycling club of Exeter is really angry with us by this point. Um, and so they decide to paint his bicycle bright red. They think, well, even he will be able to identify a bright red bicycle. Um, and lo and behold, a couple of weeks later, they get a phone call from the Royal Mail office in Exeter saying, the Lord Bishop of Exeter has been stealing all of our postman's bicycles <laughs> because they're bright red. Um, so in the end, he, they paint, paint his uh, bright bright yellow, yellowy orange to uh, distinguish it. But I think I've, he is still well-loved in Exeter, and when he dies, um, the people of the diocese construct a kind of quite elaborate tomb saying, you know, still well-loved by the people of Devon. There is something about that showing of failure, of fallacy, of strangeness that I think is actually much more convincing than showing strength or, or a kind of aggressive piety. People don't actually want their priests to be... And it's very sort of Anglican. It is. Because, it because is. You, said, you said that, you know, the Church of England um, maybe is so full of eccentrics because the English as a nation are eccentric. But it must also be something to do with the, the structure of the Church of England and the way that... Um, yeah. I suppose that you have uh, maybe very educated men living in, in drafty homes in the middle of nowhere with nothing to do except... Certainly, historically, that was the case, that the church was essentially... I mean, you've got to remember the repository for all uh, learning, for a lot of art, for a lot of culture. I mean, one could write a whole book on clergy children. That's another fascinating... People who grow up in rectories, which is... Again, it's a very distinctly... I mean, it exists sort of in the Lutheran church in Germany, sort of in the Orthodox churches, fascinatingly, in Greece and Russia, but, um, of course, not at all in the Roman Catholic world, and not actually in... Well, I mean... You know, the whole town calls me father, and for any half of them, is it true? As the old as the old joke goes. But um, you know, essentially there is. But the but the sort of the role of the clerical family is fascinating. You know, everyone from uh, Jane Austen to uh, the presenter of the English version of Pimp My Ride, Tim Westwood, are um, clergy children. Um, the 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 prime minister. Um, yes. Yeah. You know, to you know, Scottish version Gordon Brown as well. Actually. Uh, clear, the, the the atmosphere of the rectory is a fascinating one for an awful lot of our history because this is a place that's meant to be educated and yet it isn't rarefied because you could have anyone turn up but on the doorstep. But presumably now that's a tradition that's that's fading because the Church of England can't afford rectories anymore. It's, it, there is an element of that and I think that is at our peril. There is, I, you know, I'm all for, as the Pope puts it, smelling of the sheep but there is something about 
clergy playing a leadership role you know often clergy will go uh, people will go to their clergy and will expect them to be able even today to be able to dispense rudimentary medical advice legal advice is a classic one i spent this morning dealing with the vagaries of a woman stuck in the kind of a kafkaesque nightmare of, of of a change of tenancy people still expect their clergy to to do that and actually there's a certain trend in the church of england to valorize a lack of education to valorize an extreme humility but actually if we're not equipping clergy to help those people who come to us to help us to to up to, to be helped then i don't think we're doing them any favors actually you know what if we can't convince people from the pulpit through convincing rhetoric or convincing theology then what hope have we got convincing those people who don't even come to church if we can't you know hold our own in terms of you know the books we've read or the music we've listened to or the kind of the whole sphere of what it is to be an informed human being i don't think we've got a hope now that doesn't mean we need to be snobs or we need to be haughty but it can be worn with a lightness and i think a lot of what these figures do is they wear it with a degree of lightness vanity of vanities all is vanity if you keep that at the back of your mind i think you can never take these things too serious and, and would there be scope today for a for, for a vicar who wanted to dress up as a mermaid or um, some of them dress up as an awful lot worse than that um, um I, I i would i would hope so i think there is still more breadth in the church of england than there is in possibly any other national institution um for interesting and eccentric behavior perhaps less but i feel that's something that it's not completely gone and do you think um if you were to rewrite this in 40 years would that, how many have you got any kind of women oh because that you've got lined I up can, ready i for... can name plenty <laughs> were it not for court injunctions okay. that would invariably <laughs> come my way i can think of I, yeah i can think of a large number well of that's women's exciting prospect indeed and who minister, who minister effectively <laughs> and impressively but many of whom are Really, quite dangerously mad, gloriously mad in well, the great tradition of very all of the men in here. Prospect. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, it's a wonderful book. Uh, if you haven't read it, read it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment, and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode.